It's always a great joy to be back here. As Pastor mentioned, that we have known each other for the last uh, 30 years, and I'm glad that he still allows me to come here. A few years ago, we had him back in India, and I put him through so much of work that uh, he still hasn't forgiven me for that, and uh, probably will never go back to India again. But uh, it's good to have you all as a partner in ministry. This morning I've been asked to kind of update during the missions conference to give a report what has been happening. And especially it's in the context because uh, what breaks my heart is that sometime someone has been on the mission field for 40 years and they come back home and they say, well, we couldn't do anything much because the spirit didn't move. And uh, if there was anybody else doing a business over there, they would have said, okay, shake the dust of your feet in a couple of years and move on to another place. But uh, one of the things that is uh, necessary, even Paul, who set the tone for what a missionary is, that they'll come back and report to the church. They give a feedback as to what the Lord has been doing, what has been accomplishing, so that the church could send them back again and say, how can we help? How can we encourage you? What else do you need? And that's how the ministry was spread and done. And we are trying to replicate that this uh, morning uh, in, a, in the context of the missions conference over here. 25 years ago, when we went to India, it was just Vanita and I. And uh, since then, the Lord has blessed the ministry. It has been multiplied. Now we have a staff of 24 in India. We have a fully accredited seminary, a Bible translation work. A church planting and also evangelistic outreach plus a small company that generates enough funds through consulting within India to be able to support the ministry. So that is something for you all to rejoice and to celebrate that your investment over the years uh, has been multiplied in so many ways because that's where your reach is to the ends of the earth. Not just here in this small corner uh, but uh, also to other parts of the world. Uh, 2005, the Lord allowed us to start a small organization over here, 501c3, called Seek Partners International. And uh, as a result of this organization, now we have four organizations in India, and Seek Partner is the parent uh, organization. I was a primary minister in India, and also trying to raise funds while living in, in, in India, and that's what is becoming kind of a tough. So the board asked me to relocate here for a couple of years to reconnect with the churches to reconnect with donors and also try to raise some new support since uh, as the ministry is expanding, the donor base also needs to be expanded. I've seen so many new faces and that's why pastor asked me to just quickly update as to who we are, what we are doing because we are, we are your missionary, we are your extension uh, in India. So let me quickly go over. Slides are not very clear, they're a little far away, but if you can please make the best use of uh, what uh, I'm trying to show. In 1981, after an extensive period of four years of research, I came to the Lord Jesus Christ from a Sikh background. Sikhism is an offshoot of Islam and Hinduism. They bring together from both the different religions. And uh, it was a long, tedious process. But what had happened, before I was introduced to the Bible, the Christian faith, I had studied all different religions. I've read the religious books of other religions until I met a man whose name was a Hindu name, but he claimed to be Christian. 
So I was curious, and I asked him, share with me a little bit more. And um, he sure goes inside his room, brings his Bible, which was in English. I said, well, I've learned 13 languages in India, but English is not one of them, so I can't read your Bible. He couldn't speak much in Hindi, so he spoke in Bengali. I was able to understand Bengali. That was the one of the languages I had learned. And I'll reply back to him in Hindi, and he was able to understand a little bit of Hindi. It was kind of a frustrating experience. And uh, so one day he says to me, he said, Sikwand, actually I'm an English teacher. I have come to this college in Punjab for my master's degree. If you want, I can teach you English, and you can also read my Bible. Well, learning English was more attractive than reading the Bible, and I said, sure, we'll do that. He was a smart guy. Next day, he said, okay, a textbook to learn English is going to be the Gospel of John. Because it's one of the easiest and the simplest English in which this book is written. And we had all the dictionaries, English, Hindi, English, Punjabi, whatever we could get to understand the text. And we could barely go the first verse. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I said, oh, what's happening? Too many pronouns. Help me explain it. To give an idea how much time I must have spent, in eight months, I read the New Testament nine times and the Gospel of John 22 times. And part of the problem was that every time I came to the 20th chapter of John, the last two verses, where John <clears throat> says something like this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, John says, if I wanted, I could have written a lot more about Jesus because there are so many other wonderful things he did. But what I have written in this gospel, in these few pages, I believe is sufficient for anyone to read, understand, and conclude that this Jesus is the promised Messiah, and by believing in him, you can have eternal life. But in case you needed more, I could have written a lot more. I said, John, somehow I'm not convinced. Let me go back and read again. And as I read over and over again, I suddenly realized, out of all the religious books I had read, about all the other faiths that I knew, no one ever claimed what Jesus said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Nobody ever said that. Deity is something that we attributed to them. Others have tried to say and teach how to know or find the way or path to heaven. Jesus is the only one who said that I came from heaven. If you follow me, I'll take you back there. I know the way. In fact, I am the only way by which you can get to the Father. Other teachers that do enough good work and somehow before you die or maybe after your death, you will know whether you made it to heaven or not. Jesus made it very simple. If you have me, you have eternal life. If you don't have me, you don't have eternal life. So it was just too simple for me. I came from a background where we are taught that you had to sleep on the bed of nails for 20 years before you're enlightened. Or stand on one leg for 12 years. That's what Hinduism taught. And here all I have to do is put my trust in Jesus and I can have this salvation. I said, no, 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 no. Tell me what do I need to do to work hard for this? Do I pay in advance or do I pay you after I become a believer? Tell me what I need to do. It took some time to understand that there's nothing I can do to deserve or earn this salvation except receive it as a gift from God. Nothing I can do. But still, 
because of my culture, my background, because of my caste system and everything, it was not that easy to make the decision. But one day when I did make a decision, decided to take baptism, remove my turban, cut my hair, went home, declared to my, as a 19-year-old kid, I declared to my family that I found my savior. I got treated like a criminal. My dad pulls out his gun, puts it on my head, and he says, if you ever step back in this house, I'm going to shoot you. And then I knew that he meant it. I was legally disowned for eight years. I couldn't connect back with them. And they said, we have nothing to do with you. It's the worst that he could ever do to the family. Through a series of incidents, met different people, the churches, landed up at Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the finest schools. Finished my master theology degree, majoring in three different departments, went back to India, came back from a PhD in 98, did a double PhD program, went back to India. 2001, since then I've been involved with the uh, ministry over there. And all these years, you guys have been part of that. Because that's when I met Pastor Phillips in 86, when I had just come to the U.S. Not only that I was able to go back to India, but the Lord allowed that we could lead. I could lead my mom, my brother, my sisters, my father, all of them to the Lord. And we were reconciled back in the family. Lord has blessed uh, me with a wonderful wife, Vinita. We've been married for 27 years. Pastor mentioned about two daughters we have, Priyanka and Akanksha. We had a late start to the kids. Priyanka is um, uh, finishing up her second year at Baylor University. In fact, she's going to graduate in three years in her honor program, majoring in biochemistry, another one. And a very, very sharp, smart girl and hardworking one. Uh, younger one, Akanksha, she's in ninth grade. Uh, she has such a tender heart for the Lord and for people. She loves to give Bibles to people. She loves to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, school had a program that uh, they wanted to take kids for, um, uh, they call it a mission, but basically sightseeing to different places. And uh, she not only volunteers, but convinces four other people, oh, we need to do something different. Let's go to the serve at the food uh, soup kitchen and also go to the relief in, uh, uh, in Rowlett where the tornado had come. And we'd rather be doing something of a service and don't want to be just kind of a tourist of different ministries. Wonderful girl, both of them. The Lord has blessed us so much and given us the opportunities to serve him in so many different ways. One of the needs of uh, Seek Partners when it came into existence was to have a multiple ministry started in India because while pastoring, while planting churches, while serving, there were a number of things the Lord put in my heart. Number one was that we don't have trained leaders. There's a lot of emphasis upon grassroots leadership in India. And the emphasis was, oh, we don't have time to send people to seminary for three years. There's the urgency. Well, I've been hearing there for the last 30 years, and I think we had enough time to send them to seminary, to train them. Because if all that you're doing is working in the grass, then one day you just have a bigger grass. You cannot have oaks and trees out of a grass. And my emphasis was the training that I got, the education that I got, how can we replicate that? It took us a long, long time, but finally we have a school that's accredited, in fact, the only one in the whole of Northwest. When I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, I landed up doing a portion of the New Testament translated from Greek to Hindi. I suddenly realized that what a rich translation it can be, but the current Bibles that we have in Hindi was done by William Carey in 1818, 
Last time it was revised was in 1905. It's so outdated. I said, we need to revise the Bible. After years of trying to persuade Bible societies, finally International Bible took up our project. And they said, okay, if you'll have the project, we'll get you the team to do a fresh translation. So in 2002, we started with the fresh translation of the Hindi Bible from Greek and Hebrew, fresh notes, fresh everything for the first time in the history of the Hindi Bible. New Testament came out a couple of years ago. Now we're waiting for the full Bible to come out. And it's a study Bible. And team of 11 full-time workers, 2,000 different people who participated in that. And in 16 years, we produced a monumental project. Now we're trying to put these hands in the, in, in the hands of the pastors and the Bible college students and also to non-Christians. Not only that, then the issue was everybody talks about where two or three are gathered in my name. That's a church in India. You don't need to have training. Only in America you need to have an MDiv or PhD or something to be a pastor of a church. But these guys in India, you know, three weeks, you go, you're ready to pastor. But in fact, you need to be a rocket scientist to be pastor in India. People respect education. People respect intelligence. People respect knowledge. And you can't fool them, you can't trick them. The sad part is, the focus of ministry in India has always been upon the poor. You hear a lot about Dalits and a lot about uh, the poverty in India. India is not a poor country. But the church in India is poor because it's primarily made up of poor people. We have 600 million, twice the population of U.S., what we call a middle class. And we still talk about the bottom 10% to reach them. And the reason for that is, because for some reason, whenever we talk about missions, only three things come to our mind. Charity, healing, and liberation. And the reason for that is because that's how the missions got started in, in, in the Europe, in the time of William Carey, who was commissioned to go and work among the poor. Because that's what they used to do in Europe. You know, for a church, to do mission means run a soup kitchen, distribute blankets, take care of the poor, or it was healing. Once in a while, run a clinic, take care of the eyes, take care of the ears, take care of the sickness. That's mission. Or get some laws passed so they can take care of the people who need to have a little bit more liberation, what they can do. That's how William Carey and the modern missions were born. Go to India. And one of the first notes that William Carey writes back to his uh, mission, he says, if you want to reach India, you cannot start from the bottom. You have to start from the top. Because Indian poor are also tied up to this religious caste system. And if the church starts there, somebody from the upper caste will never ever come and sit in the church. That's what has happened right now. So when I became a Christian, one of the biggest acquisitions against me was that I fell from a Kshatriya class and I became Shudra. So now I become untouchable. My own relatives will not touch me and deal with me. Because I fell from a caste of a becoming a Christian. To fight against that, we are trying to establish churches in the middle class, lower middle class, upper middle class, to give an idea that no, it's not just for poor. Because if you go to Punjab with the gospel that Jesus Christ is for poverty, for healing and for liberation, then they conclude this is, I don't need your charity. I have more money than you can ever have. I don't need to go to some cheap mission hospital get treatment, I can afford to go to the best of the hospitals. I also, free, 
I don't need to be liberated about anything. Hence, your Jesus is not for me. We have forgotten that the mission of missions was to preach repentance and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 24, verse 47. Romans paints the same picture. I'll come back to that one. With those things we started, so today we have a holistic ministry in terms of trying to take care of the crucial needs of uh, the country. But as you know in India, it's always known for its population. How many of you have been to India? Okay, I see a few hands. One of the best ways I can describe India is like Europe. And all the different countries in Europe, different languages, different things, multiply Europe by 10 times, and that's what India is. Each state has a separate language, separate food, separate culture, separate everything. 18 different scripts make up more than 2,000 languages. That divided we are. You travel 100 miles in any direction, you can't understand the other person. That's how it is. In that diverse country, somebody has said that if you want to come up with a slogan to say, we are one. If you want to say that in India, we are one. It has to be translated in different ways as much as 2,160 different ways to say we are one before everybody can understand it. That defeats the purpose right there. That diverse the countries. It's also known for its population because there was a time when China, India went into a race to have more people because we have had wars with them and they thought wars were going to be fought with the fist and hand to hand. So they both were in race to have more, more, uh, more people. So when you look at India, what comes to mind are the images of the population. I hope the picture's a little clear. It's people, people, people everywhere. There's a temple in South India where every year half a million, 500,000 women who are married but don't have children go to this temple to pray for the blessing of a child. That's just one of the temples. If you go to North India to Haridwar or near Ganges, you find that every other person is a spiritual guru who's trying to read your past and tell you about your karma to help you connect to God. Because that desperately people are seeking to have a relationship with God. So one day, my daughter had to make a presentation to class and she was saying, Papa, help me understand how big is a billion because we have 1.25 billion people in India. So I said, before I do that, I also explained to her, I said, all that we do in terms of ministry is only focused upon the Northwest. In fact, sometimes people say to me, aren't you a little narrow-minded? You need to have a bigger vision to think about the whole of India. I said, I'm still dealing with 60 million people. How could I be narrow-minded? <laughs> That's twice the population of Canada. That's 10 times the population of Singapore. So if somebody has a vision for Singapore, he's broad-minded, but if I have a vision only for Northwest India, I'm narrow-minded. <laughs> we forget the people that we're dealing with. So our focus is Northwest of India and the major four languages and four religions that are represented over there. So I asked my younger daughter, I said, go to your computer in the Excel sheet, open it up, and I want you to calculate that since the time of Christ in 2,000 years, how many minutes have passed? She goes to her computer, sits down, 
2,000 years, 365 days in a year, 24 hours in a day, and 60 minutes. And she comes back with the answer that since the time of Christ, only 1 billion minutes have passed. So in other words, in 2,000 years, 2 billion minutes have not yet passed. That big is a billion. If someone was born at the same time as Christ, and they spent $1 per minute, they barely spent $1 billion. And we have people in the, in the world who are multi-billionaire. But take it one step further. If I could devise a plan that I want to reach one person in India every minute. So someone will come to the Lord every minute. To reach 1.25 billion people, I will need 2,375 years. And I have not yet factored in 32 new births every minute. I'm only talking about the existing population, but 32 per minute are going to be born, what I'm going to do with them for the next 2,375 years. That big is a billion. So if someone ever comes to you here and they say, we have a ministry and we have a plan to reach whole of India, walk away from that person. <laughs> he has no clue what he's talking about in terms of the numbers. In that place, makes you wonder what difference will it make for what we are doing. And I often say, even I'm one in a billion. Somebody could have easily passed me by. When you look at God reached out, he made turn around nations out of one person. He's looking for individuals, always working with individuals. So after many, many years of work in the Northwest, we found that one of the best way to train the nationals is to start a small seminary. North India Institute of Theological Studies uh, uh, was established to, op to offer accredited Bachelor of Theology and Master of Divinity degrees. Again, we are the only accredited school in the whole of Northwest to serve eight states, 60 million people. And our capacity in the school is only 60 students. And that too, we struggle to get good 60 students. We are so tough on the students who come. We start with 20 and may graduate 14, 15, because when we put a stamp on somebody, we know that they are certified to really go and do the ministry. It's a small school, small ministry. Still, we struggle in terms of raising funds and getting enough people. You'll have no idea the amount of mission money that goes to India in the name of leadership training. Someone mentioned that an average amount every year is 25 million US dollars that goes to India under the name of training nationals. And I can't find anybody from North India to come and teach at my school because they don't have the academic qualification to do that. Neither do they have the ministry experience. So I don't know who we are training and who's training them, but we can't find them. So when Jesus said that the harvest is plenty, send laborers, the term that's used over there is used of a rugged, qualified, daily wage guy. He says, I'll send them qualified laborers. You don't want people just to line up, just to show up, because there's going to be free food, and there's going to be free benefits at the end of the day. He said, we need people who actually are going to labor, who are going to work to do that. Not only North India Institute does the formal training, but we also have been doing pastors' conferences for a number of years. And uh, Pastor Philip was one of the speakers a few years ago. We've also been able to establish 
Northwest India's largest theological library. As a seed, I gave my personal library of 3,000 books. And it took us 10 years to bring that number to 10,000, which is the minimum we have to have before we can be accredited for a Master of Divinity degree. And it has been a monumental task because all books, theological books are expensive. They're here. We don't print them. We had to get them from one way or the other. We've been doing that, and still we want to expand the library to have more. Another distinction of our school is we run it as a 50-50% because women in India do not have opportunities to go to a seminary for proper education. First, the church does not believe that there's any role for women in the church. Second, oftentimes the parents say that we can't afford to send them. So we run it as a 50-50%. 50% women, 50% men. That's another distinction. Some of our women, I'll not say some, all of our women are some of the most sought-after workers for children's ministry, for women's ministry, for literature production, for working with the NGOs and relief organizations. They're some of the best qualified workers we have. And same men who come there, they go back to the churches to start working, getting trained for planting churches, leading different organizations. They serve now in six neighboring countries. It's a small school. But in just the last 10 years, the impact that we have seen uh, is, is an amazing that the Lord has done. And the beauty of that is that you all have been part of that. It's your investment over the years that has been bearing much fruit that you see and that I'm reporting. We also, <clears throat> as I mentioned, the large pastors conference we do, we do one a year in the month of February, and then we do six other small ones regionally, between one to three days, to train pastors, and the topics are always in one of the three, either book of the Bible, one theological topic, one doctrine we take, or some practical skill. Because that's the emphasis. There's in those three things we train people, that we want to make sure that they have those skills also. We started the church planting ministry, again in reaction to all the reports that come from India, that how thousands and thousands of churches are getting planted. But sadly, the definition that they use of church planting is where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in the midst of them. So there's a church, go. The head of the family meets with his wife and kid, that's a church, go. We've forgotten what a church is. We use the same definition that was used for synagogue. A synagogue was not called a synagogue until they have ten heads of the family. Which means you had ten families committed to this group. And the beauty is that 10 people can support a one full-time worker. Because if 10 people, 10 families commit to give 10%, then they'll have 90% remaining, 100% comes in the pool, you can afford to give 80 or 90% out of that to the other person, and you still have 10, 20% left for ministry. So all that you need is a 10 families to support a family. And that's what we've been doing. We uh, support a person, it costs us $5,000 a year, to plant a church, and in two years, they will have a church established. And then we release them. You can be independent. You can join one of the three denominations that we recommend. And every year, we release two churches being done. We can't mass produce that because that's not how it works. Not only the church planting, but I mentioned about <clears throat> the Bible that we release. Uh, it costs us about $5 for each one. We never give it for free. The pastor has to pay $1.50 to get it. 
And, uh, but the, here's the strange part. I have trouble raising $5 even as a donation to give this, give this Bible to somebody. But you know, true giving is always a sacrificial giving. I tell a coffee drinker, can you give up your one cup of coffee a month from Starbucks? And you can sponsor somebody with a Bible. I met a lady, she says, you know what, I'm guilty. Every day I buy two cups of coffee and I only take two sips. And she says, actually I replaced my smoking habit. For years I'll smoke, I'll take one puff and I'll throw away the cigarette, so that was more expensive. Now I buy a coffee, I take two sips and I throw away my coffee. I didn't want to say that to her, but I said, in my definition, that's called wastage. But, but I encouraged her. I said, can you give up one cup, and that one cup a day, which means 30 Bibles a month, you can give it to somebody? We also have a number of um, qualified people to do not only Bible translation, but now we have taken up to translate theological books that we use. We just finished uh, Dr. Ryrie's book on survey of Bible doctrine. We also worked on uh, the Bible knowledge commentary. It's done in Hindi and in, uh, in the Old Testament and New Testament. It's available in English and Hindi. A number of other books are working. So we have qualified people to be able to do that so that others can also benefit, not just us. And I have written a number of uh, tracks to distribute. But because of the combination of the PhD they had in higher education administration from University of North Texas and from DTS, I also started conducting seminars for Asia Theologian. That's the accrediting body that accredits 208 Bible college and seminars, uh, seminaries in Asia. I do seminars for the academic dean and heads of the department how to do theological education better and how to have better courses, better evaluation. So that I do about six a year and I've trained others to do that so they can take a little break and uh, be part of that. And a few tracks that we distribute, try to reach people from different community. We have a specific target to share the gospel with the Sikhs in Punjab. We don't talk much about that because we don't want to create trouble for people and trouble for myself. But uh, some of the ways in which uh, we are trying to influence uh, people over there. I'd mentioned a little bit about that uh, how we need to put mission of the missions back into what it is. Because if you look at the book of Romans, Paul starts in chapter 1 by saying that actually God has written all over the world and everyone should know and get the message because they are without excuse. God didn't have to do anything else. Just that knowledge and written in the nature and creation is enough to condemn people that you're guilty because you have no, no excuse. But still God reached out to us. Romans 8, uh, 3.23 says to the world that it doesn't matter how good your works are, you're never ever going to come close to the glory of God or qualify for heaven. All our good works, I fall short. They're like filthy rags and we fall way short of the glory of God. But God does not end there. Romans 6.23 says that even though the wages of sin, the penalty that at the end of the day, what you're going to get paid for your sinful life is death. But God has provided salvation, free gift in Jesus Christ. And you can have it. By the time you reach 
Romans chapter 10, now Paul is talking about the whole world. He said, we, I want everyone to get to know this message. So that everyone can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he gives a very clear instructions. Unless they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart, they cannot be saved. They have to confess Jesus as their Lord. He says, how will they confess unless they hear about him first? And how will they hear unless somebody preaches it to them? And how will they preach unless they are being sent? I like the phrase that Paul says it has to be preached. The Great Commission in Luke, in Mark, in Matthew, every way talks about preaching the gospel. And the difference is this. If all I want to do is go out and do charity, or if I just love people enough that somehow they'll get the message that they're supposed to respond to Jesus Christ, it's not going to happen. It didn't happen in Jesus' days. Remember John chapter 6, where Jesus says to the disciples, he says, you are following me not because of my teaching. You come here because I give you free food. That's how the world is today. We think that somehow they'll make the connection, but no. The person who led me to the Lord and allowed me to read the Bible, almost on a daily basis, he'll ask me, Sikwan, now that you've read it, are you ready to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I used to say, not yet. I used to come up with all kinds of excuses. Until one day he says to me, Sikwan, Make sure that you have a very good excuse to give to God one day when you stand before him. That's when it hit me. None of my excuses were good enough. And especially now I was without excuse because I had heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. I read about him. I understood about him. Nobody was forcing me to make this choice, but I had to do something with this Jesus. And believe me, I came up with all the possible excuses to reject him, but I couldn't. Except to bow at his feet and confess that, yes, you are the only Lord and Savior. But what happens now, we send money, I mean, please don't get me wrong. All those things, are, but we are mixing the, what is the missional responsibility of the church with the social responsibility of the church. Deuteronomy 15 is the one from the instructions were laid out about taking care of the poor. And all the way through the scriptures you find that. It's always in the context of taking care of poor brother. Widows and orphans in the church. You can't find the justification of the scripture that is ever to be used for evangelism and missions. If all that we want to do is heal people, we are just making sure that they go to hell healthy. We don't want any sick people to go to healthy. We want to heal them before they go to hell. On the contrary to that, Jesus said, if your hand causes you a problem, cut it off. It's better for you to go to heaven without one hand because you're going to be made whole there anyway. That's not what the gospel is. That's not what the mission of missions is. It's the preaching, the repentance, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has to be preached which demands a response. Any ministry that does not get that is not missions. You can call it whatever else you want to call it. And oftentimes, the churches are funding this, whatever it's called. But thank you for your investment in the areas 
in which the evangelism is done, the missions is done, the training of the people is done, the teaching of the scripture is done. They've been trained to be pastors and go and plant churches. But here's your involvement. You know, oftentimes we talk about that, you know, in the churches there's a huge fight. You know, we need to have worship a little bit better. There's so much of competition. The other church got a better building. Their screens are better. Their LCD is sharper. Their music instruments are better and everything. Worship experience has to be better. Somebody else says, you know, we need to have a good, vibrant pastor. We need guy with the new jokes. Pastor Phil's jokes have become old. Someone who will entertain us a little bit better with new stories. Or we need to have a fellowship. Every Sunday there should be enough donuts and potluck every Sunday night and fellowship in the homes and all that because that's what the church is supposed to be doing. But you know there's one thing that will not be done in heaven. That's evangelism or mission. That's only done on earth. So which is not to say that we don't need worship and teaching and fellowship. What I'm saying is everything that we do in the church is for the purpose of evangelism and mission. You know, there are two perspectives that I always talk about that I want my church to be a retreat for me. When I come back being bruised from the world, I want it to entertain me, pamper me, massage me, make me feel good. That's what the church is supposed to be. But somebody else says, no, 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 no. This is a clinic. This is a hospital. We're going to bandage you up and send you back to the battle again. It's not a retreat. It's a, it's a hospital. Tell us how to fix you to send you back there. But it's very easy to start getting comfortable, cozy environment. We forget that the reason the Lord has put us on this earth is so that people around the world will be without excuse. See, I don't change anybody. I don't convert anybody. That's God's prerogative. You and I cannot do that. The only thing that you and I can do is that anyone who comes in contact with us, they have heard from our mouth about the Lord Jesus Christ and they are without excuse. I often use the phrase that uh, we all do name dropping somewhere or the other. We're moving around and you want to mention, I know Pastor Philip. He's the pastor of Valley Bible Church. You drop a name. For me, the name dropping, the highest name, and the best name that I know is the name of Jesus. I'm proud to be associated with him. You're with me over 10 minutes. Doesn't matter which part of the world you are. I'm going to drop the name Jesus somewhere or the other. That's called name dropping. Now, he's curious to ask, why your name is Sikhwan Singh Bhatia from a Sikh background, and you talk about Jesus. Akanksha was a younger, was in second grade. She comes home with a strange request, and she says, Papa, can you buy me one of those chains that has a cross in front? And my first reaction was that, you know, we are not Catholic. We don't have to wear crosses. And uh, so it's a strange request from a girl. I said, why? She said, my name is Akanksha, and most of the people think that either I'm a Hindu or a Sikh. But if I wear a cross, then people will ask me, why are you wearing a cross? And they'll give me an excuse to talk about Jesus. A second grader. And sure enough, people will come up to her. Teachers will come up to her. Why are you wearing that cross? I'm so glad that you asked. Let me tell you. The day this Bible was released, you know what she said? 
Papa, can I have a copy for my Hindi teacher so I can give it to her? She takes it, give it to a Hindi teacher. Hindi teacher says, I've not seen or read this refined Hindi for a long time. Can we give a copy of this to all the Hindi teachers in school? Sure. You can have a part, a small part. Start the children on that thing. The allowance that they get, tell them save $5 a month. Sponsor a Bible. For a Bible college, it costs us $1,600 a year to have a residential education for a student. They pay $400, that's 25% they pay, plus another 25% for incidental expenses. I'm responsible for raising $1,200 a year for a residential scholarship. That's $100 a month per student, needed for 50 students. I go around asking people, can you sponsor a student for $100 a month? And the reply is, no, we don't have any money. I said, as a family, when you go out to eat, how much does it cost? Eh, minimum $100. How many times do you go out and eat? At least four times a month? It's always more. I said, can you sacrifice going out and eating this once a month? They'll pay for somebody's education for the whole month, including room and boarding, boarding and food and everything, for $100 a month. If you were willing to sacrifice. The biblical mandate of fasting was, not that I'm going to lose weight, but the fasting principle was the amount of money that you're going to spend on that day, on that meal, give that meal to somebody else. That was the fasting principle. Just skip a meal, not that you don't buy that meal, now make sure that you buy that meal for somebody else. That's what the sacrificial giving was. In a small way, one can make a large impact. All that you have to do is be creative. But sometimes what we feel, the Lord, I've given you a 10%. I've now sanctified my 90%. Don't bother me what I do with the rest of the money. I think sometimes God is more interested in what we do with the 90% than what we do with the 10%. The whole book in the Old Testament was written, book of Malachi, God says, I can tell your spirituality what you do with your money. That's a good indication to me. And that's the beauty. God did not ask for equal amount, but equal sacrifice. Equal say everybody give a percentage. But the, amount, the problem is that as the percentage amount increases, somehow we start questioning whether God really needs my money or not. I remember when I had $10, it's very easy to take $1 out and put in the offering. When you have $100, this is ah, $10. Okay, I'll give it, Lord, since you have blessed me. I get $1,000. Now I have to give $100. Okay, I'm going to sacrifice being a big spiritual person. I'll give $100. When I get 10000 then I want to know how is the church going to spend my $1,000. <laughs> when I get $100,000 and I have to give 10000 to the church, now I want to see the financial reports. I want to see the salary of the staff. I want to know how much are they spending on donuts and how much are they spending on other things. Because suddenly they owe it to me. It's still the same 10%. You've forgotten that God has blessed you so that you can be blessing to somebody else. And that's the biblical principle. That's the biblical principle. Thank you so much for being such a blessing to us.
Thank you so much for investing in the last 25 years. And I tell you, it's just the beginning, just the beginning. That you can have impact in a, such a larger way around the world. And not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I'll request Pastor Philip to please come and conclude with a word of prayer. Thank you.